The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, May the 2nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I was joined today by Fia Kelly, our deputy political editor, and also by Helen McEntee, who's Minister for European Affairs, so therefore deeply embroiled in the ongoing Brexit process. There's a lot of Brexit news this week. But first, we talked about the scandal in relation to cervical scanning. Helen, you're very welcome to the studio. Thanks for coming in. Uh, We're going to talk in a little while about uh, Brexit, but... Fiak, I want to talk to you first about you did the Daily Digest yep. for our subscribers this morning from Inside Politics. Uh, if you're not signed up, you should. Um, and obviously the item on the agenda on all the front pages this morning and, and for reams of pages inside is this scandal hmm. about the cer- cervical screening process. Yeah, I think there was a dramatic development in the doll last night where the Minister for Health came in and said, well, the import of what he said was that there, there were more than 1,500 women who had developed cervical cancer who may not have had their cases reviewed by cervical check and that was a further development on already on what was already a scandal and has further developed in significance and importance and I think the most I suppose depressing point uh, from the whole thing apart from the fact that these are very serious cases it is a very serious issue like you know the fact that there are women out there now who you know, are questioning cervical check is a hugely, hugely damaging thing for the health system because it is a massively important program. But this has followed the pattern that previous health scandals have followed in that something comes to light, be it a personal uh, tragedy or a specific issue. Um, The government says it is, uh, you know, very concerned about it, horrified about it. And to be fair to the politicians in this regard, they see how significant it is and they go back to the health system and they say, well, what, 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 what is there here? And, you know, the initial response is, well, there are X and X. And then we find out, well, actually, there are files here that we didn't know about already. And lo and behold, it's a much bigger problem than we previously thought. And I think Claire Daly, uh, speaking to Simon Harris in the chamber last night, said that to him. She said, you know, you're in, in the unenviable position here. We have to come in and give us further details. And Simon Harris, just the latest Minister for Health, who has to come in and say, look, further information has come to light. I don't know how significant it is, but it indicates that this problem is far wider than we thought. I think that is a huge systemic problem with the health system, that there is never any uh, sense that it finds itself in a crisis and it downplays the crisis at the start before it catches up so with So was it. information withheld from the Minister? It doesn't. I think it's probably too strong to say withheld, but the fact that we had the Taoiseach yesterday in Leader's Questions outlining his state of knowledge as he knew it then, the Minister for Health out a number of times over the weekend outlining his state of knowledge as he knew it then, and then having to go in and literally, as it seems, being handed information before he went into the chamber yesterday evening, I would say that that would be highly unsatisfactory from a politician's point of view, but from an administration point of view where there is, seems to be nobody in the system that had an idea that there was more information there that perhaps the public should have known. It's been a week since the Vicky Phelan uh, case down the High Court and yet more information is coming out and it speaks volumes for the fact that this is just following another pattern. The pattern of which we've seen before is repeating itself again. Helen, Miriam Lord has a 
lengthy piece in the paper today, really about, as Felix says, the, the, the pattern of this kind of behavior, particularly as it pertains to women, women's health and issues around women's health over and over and over again. And uh, do politicians throw up their hands in despair at, at this? And what questions get asked about accountability beyond the political system for public servants or people in the HSE? I mean, it's extremely frustrating when you have um, a screening programme like this in place. It does work. We do know that there are flaws in in any screening programme and you want women to have confidence in this in the same way uh, where previously we had concerns around the HPV vaccine. You saw figures drop of girls actually taking it up. We know that helps save lives as well. The reason that happened is because there wasn't confidence in it based on a series of things that have happened. What we're seeing now again uh, is a screening programme that works um, but because of actions that have been taken people now are questioning that and for the minister to only get information like the, the, the cervical screening program is there firstly to provide uh, cervical smear checks and tests secondly to carry out audits and the fact that over half of the women who have been diagnosed with cervical cancer have not been audited raised the questions did they not have the ability to uh, audit them did they not come under the cervical check is that why they didn't did they not just look at the figures why did that information not become available last week? Why was it not available to the Taoiseach yesterday in the morning and suddenly to the minister in the evening? You know, this drip feed of information to the minister, I'm sure is extremely frustrating for him. And I sat in the chamber, uh, not for all of it last night, but as much as I could. Um, and all of the questions being asked are valid questions. I know the minister tried to answer them as best he could, but it's very difficult when he is only getting that information. We want the women of this country. I want, you know, I, I'm somebody who avails a cervical check. All of the women of age do, and indeed other women uh, privately go and, and have smear tests if they feel that they want to or they need to. We want to have confidence in this system, but if we're not getting the right information, it's very hard to do that. So I think the minister has been right in his actions over the past uh, week or so. Um, he immediately asked for a statutory inquiry by HICWA. What he was very clear in saying is that HICWA needed to have the actual powers to carry out um, this investigation to look at quality assurance, to look at uh, communication in the scheme, but also to look um, at, I suppose, the... the um, the auditing process of the Although scheme it was suggested well. last night, I think, by Alan Kelly that a HICWA investigation wasn't sufficient at this point. It was, but I suppose there were other members at the time who also said, well, if we start looking further afield and, and going into a legal process, it could take years. Forever. It could stop mm. anybody in mm. the doll from actually discussing it. We don't want mm. that to happen. We want this to be addressed mm. now. If the minister needs to give HICWA additional powers, I think he said he could look mm. at that and see if that's a possibility. You also have now the international peer review. You have a lot of things happening as well. And the introduction of the mandatory open disclosures, which obviously was discussed a lot last night. Well, in, indeed, in, rela in, in relation to that, I mean, given that, you know, very often the political establishment, you know, throws up its hands in horror at, at, at these kind of events. But, I mean, is there some political responsibility here, Fiac? I mean, why haven't we always had mandatory disclosure? And who was minister at the time when it was uh, first proposed? I fairly know I think it's been proposed a number of times. Uh, the Taoiseach, I think, was Minister for Health and, and, and didn't favour it, I think, the time I opened the correction on Again, my understanding, and I haven't been on the health committees, is that it's come up a number of times. Mm. Um, and actually, the committees voted yeah. to actually introduce the voluntary initially. Mm. Now, there was a suggestion from Claire Daly last night that there had been uh, people who wanted it, including mm. the Taoiseach, mm. that that then changed, that then there were meetings. So I, I'm not fully up to speed myself. But it there would have be interesting been to know what the public argument 
vote against it was. Was it because of fear of, uh, of, of, of financial liability? My understanding is that the committee suggested or proposed that it would be voluntary first, mm. that this was the way that it had taken shape in other countries and this was the best practice. Uh, however, again, something last night maybe uh, appeared slightly different to, to, to that in, in Claire Daly's contribution that there had been a, a willingness to bring forward the mandatory first, um, but then that changed. So why that changed, I don't know. And I think maybe that needs to be investigated. But what's important now, we can't change what happened in the past. What we can do is bring in the mandatory um, open disclosures. And I think it's really, really important, given what we've just witnessed over the past few weeks and months, that that does happen as quickly does, as possible. Uh, does the government still have confidence in the head of the HSE, Mr O'Brien? Uh, I think we do have confidence in him and I think uh, everybody, as the Taoiseach said, deserves uh, to be heard and to make sure that this is not just a, a, a hung jury before we actually know all of the facts. He said that even the HSE chief deserved a fair he- hearing, which is interesting wording. Well, I, I'm not going to repeat what he said, but I think everybody uh, deserves a fair hearing, yes. It's, I think it's widely known that the, the relationship between Tony O'Brien and senior HSE management and the Taoiseach and the Taoiseach's staff wouldn't have been the warmest going back to the time of the Department of Health and there's always a wariness between the Department of Health and the HSE. Is there a really bad relationship between the Department of Health and the HSE? It seems that way, yeah. There has been for some time. And uh, even the story this morning uh, by Simon Carswell and Martin Wall uh, about Tony O'Brien taking up a position with a US uh, company while he was still in situ but then the HSC has no problem immediately coming out and saying well we got sanctioned from the Minister for Health to do this. There seems to be a kind of an adversarial mutual suspicion on both their behalves and one thing that struck me in the middle of all this this week was you know Simon Harris on Friday quite clearly made it known that he had no confidence in certain people running cervical check or in, in that area and then Tony O'Brien came out and said point said I wouldn't have done that if that was me in the six o'clock news. There's a definite widening of the gap between the HC and the political end of it. And uh, Tony Bryan obviously is on his way out the door in the mm-hmm. summer anyway. So that probably means the real politic of it is is that the government wouldn't make, make any moves even if it wanted to. In probably not. And look, the argument that Taoiseach made yesterday in the House was that, you know, he, he did say even Tony O'Brien deserves a fair hearing. But I think he's correct in that. It hasn't been the manner, apart from last week, of the government that when a senior public sector figure comes into question to immediately kind of say, well, that's it, they have to go on. Like, we've been here before. Everybody deserves deserves to see the facts. Like, we've been here before with Norian O'Sullivan. Um, You know, that dragged on for on and on on and on and on. But, like, the Taoiseach is not going to immediately say, you know, he he must go now, given the fact that he's already on his way out the door. And I don't think that even if Tony O'Brien were to look for a second term, I I think the, the general mood around the place when he announces retirement was that, it wouldn't be looked kindly upon if he were to ask for one anyway. So I think the situation as pertains now probably suits everybody that he is leaving, but it's probably too much to expect that he would leave immediately now. I'm just, just, I've just, we've just pulled up um, uh, the, the issue that we, we just mentioned about mandatory disclosure. I'll read this out. Legislation to compel doctors and hospitals to own up to mistakes was first mooted by Leo Varadkar when he was Minister for Health. However, he resiled from the proposal on the recommendation of officials, which is what he said. It was due to be mandatory open disclosure, but advice from the Chief Medical Officer at the Department of Health, Tony Hollihan, advised against such a provision. He said that legal requirements compelling disclosures make doctors and nurses more fearful of adverse legal consequences and therefore less likely to disclose close openly and honestly. I suppose that kind of paints a pretty grim picture of 
the way that well, the way the, the is I suppose coming from the Department of Health myself last year, you are, I suppose, placing your trust in the recommendations that officials give you, and particularly medical practitioners. And I know that Thishuk obviously has a medical background himself, but um, if you are given advice um, by those who are working in that field, and, and I suppose that they base it on their own experience or their international best practice, then there is an onus sometimes on you to... to to take that advice to obviously explore the culture, albeit from very you know highly professional people who perform a great service for 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 many many people, but there is a traditional culture there of a certain sort of closed. Uh, you know, we are the experts, we'll decide what's best for you. That is the tradition. Well, I, I think the, the minister work. referred to it as a paternalistic approach mm-hmm. last night, particularly yeah. on this issue, and, and experts don't always get it right, and recommendations don't always turn out to be the right thing, um, and certainly ministers don't always get it right either in, in following those recommendations. So I think we need to take heed of what's happened. Uh, a woman has been dragged through a scenario that she absolutely should not have, and the fact that she was so determined, the fact that Vicky Phelan uh, made sure that her story became known, uh, that the facts are out there. And unfortunately, we're now still learning facts. And I think that's uh, really the problem here. I do not want to go into the chamber today for leaders' questions and hear more information coming out that we didn't know last night or that the minister didn't have available to him last night. And, and that's really the crux of it. We need to get all of the information. We need to address the facts and we need to make sure that this doesn't happen again. It's, it's of a different order, um, but it is just a couple of months since the T-shirt stood in the House and said that he wasn't happy with the informa- information flow from another department mm-hmm. under siege at the time, which is the Department of Justice, that, you know, arguably the most damage done to Francis Fitzgerald before Christmas was the drip, drip, drip of information of emails that were came out day after day rather than coming maximum disclosure to start. And at the time, I think the Taoiseach's statement in the House where he said that he, he kind of pointedly criticised senior public officials without naming them within the Department of Justice and said he wanted that... Um, you know, the way that system operated overhauled, that led to a quite a negative reaction from public sector organisations representing those at a higher level. So you wonder if we're just heading for a similar situation. So is where there a burgeoning problem here? Well, it seems that, to be that like... The Taoiseach the, seems to see some significant problems in the in the administration of the public yeah, service and, he, and he isn't afraid to say he it. He wasn't afraid to say it before Christmas when it was the Department of Justice. So the curious thing now is whether the political system will say it now. Like, if it's transmitted back to you know, Hawkins House across the road, that, you know, it's not good enough to give us partial information on a, on a day-to-day basis and have us click. It's, a, it, it's, it's the politician's nightmare to go out and say something in public and then two days later going, oh, by the way, you know, there's other stuff that we knew about we didn't tell you at the time. I was struck over the weekend reading um, a, 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 a quotation from a book from a former political advisor in the UK who said that their golden rule when a crisis hit was to lock themselves in a room, establish everything first, before you went out in public because what the most damaging thing that could happen is you went in public and then something else happens. So it would be curious to see over the coming days if what Leo Varadkar said about the Department of Justice before Christmas is now said to the Department of Health that this cannot happen anymore, that if you find yourself in a situation, information must be given to us in a quick manner. We have a slightly different scenario, though, in that obviously we don't know if the information was available to the Department mm. of Health, whether it just come from the HSE. So you have another layer to add on to that that's maybe mm. slightly more complex. But, I mean, it's important that we don't tar mm. everyone with the same brush. And we have fantastic people working in the departments, but you have such huge numbers working in departments, such huge amounts of information, mm. so many different issues being addressed at the same time. Um, but there has to be accountability. It has to... Mm. stop somewhere and, and where does that mm. stop well, we need to get clarity m- moving on to your day job uh, <laughs> which is tricky enough in itself as as Minister for European uh, Affairs these days I mean Fiak mentioned UK politics there's supposedly a major UK cabinet meeting today that might have 
some impact on what's going to happen in terms of the UK's next next step in discussing the customs union? Well, what I hope is is that we do get something out of today, whatever they may be discussing us at, at cabinet level, because it's a crucial time in the negotiations. Um, we obviously made a, a number of breakthroughs at the March Council meeting. Um, a transition period was provisionally agreed. Uh, we moved on in certain elements of the withdrawal bill, separate to that on financial settlement, uh, the citizens' rights. But obviously, one of the biggest outstanding issues uh, to be translated is the Irish Protocol. Um, there were a series of meetings um, organised between the March and the June Council meeting. We have four of those left. Um, and how have they gone so far? Well, uh, unfortunately, to date, we don't have um, the information that we need from the UK. We don't have any clear uh, proposals as to how they're going to translate the protocol. We don't have any clear indications. Uh, we have commitments from Theresa May saying that um, all of the issues addressed in the EU's translation of the protocol will be addressed. We have a commitment that there'll be no hard border. We have a commitment to protect the Good Friday Agreement but we don't know how they're going to do it. So really, it's extremely crucial that we start to see this actually being put forward. What they're discussing today, for the most part, though, is about the future relationship. So while that's really important, because for us, our preference is to deal with the Irish issues through the future relationship. The, 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 full, the, the full relationship the full, between the EU and... Yeah, so and, your, your ABC option, A is the future relationship, C is the, the, is the Irish protocol. So we would prefer to see it, but at the same time, the commitment was given to make sure that the protocol was there, irrespective of the And the Irish the protocol outcome. is essentially what's known as the backstop. The backstop, yes. And are we to understand, it certainly looks to me uh, from outside FIAC, as if there is no backstop there, and the British aren't really working on a backstop. Well, the British have agreed in December to the principle of the backstop. David Davis was at a House of Lords committee yesterday when he said that he was pilloried before Christmas, was saying this had no legal standing, and I think the quibbling is over the legal standing of the backstop. They have agreed in principle, and it shouldn't be forgotten that they agreed the principle of the backstop. Yeah. But I think the idea that they may not agree to a legal text giving effect to that is going to cause a problem in the coming months because Helen might disagree with me, uh, but the Taoiseach and the uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs were quite clear in recent weeks they want progress by June, significant mm. progress by June. Michel Barnier in a piece in the Independent the weekend also said he wants significant progress by June. But then when he was up, uh, he was visiting uh, Newry, I think the other day, he, he, said, he said June or October. So is there a bit of slippage then to see, like, is the Irish government coming under pressure from the EU side saying, you guys are saying June, but, like, you know, can go no, to October not, as well? No, not at all. And actually, we had a meeting because before we went to Newry, Michel Barnier came to our Fourth Island Civic mm. Dialogue, which was in Dundalk. And I think it was significant that he came at the time of the negotiations mm. that it is, but also because the Irish issue is the main mm. one left to be resolved with mm. some others. It's not the only one. Um, but what he was very clear in saying that if we don't have to use the phrase, sufficient progress mm. on the Irish issue, that everything else is in jeopardy. So his message was very clear to the EU, or to the UK, sorry, in saying that if we don't see that progress, the time we have to actually resolve it is less and less. And if we don't have that overall agreement uh, completed by October, then the transition won't be agreed. Uh, the agreement on citizens' rights and financial settlement, that's off the table. And to use his phrase, nothing is agreed mm. until everything is agreed. I suppose he couldn't be any clearer mm. If we don't see that progress by so June, there's no it difference puts everything between in him jeopardy. Throwing in the word October, that, that, that well, I mean, the, the final deadline is October. Mm. So, I mean, mm. what we've always said is we don't expect everything to be done by June. It's just not going to be possible because you still have a number of weeks and months. But if we're to get to the June Council meeting, if we're to still be in the position that we're in now, where there is no viable proposals uh, put forward by the UK, then the whole withdrawal bill is in serious jeopardy, and that includes. We are now the in the first week in May. Have you seen any sign of what 
you know, something that might amount to sufficient progress well, in we, what, after we, all, is only in a few short weeks. We still have the four meetings. So I think overall there were five or six um, allocated between the March and June. So uh, there's still a quite a significant amount of time for the negotiations. And as you say, the UK are debating um, various different things this week. I know they've had their challenges as well in the last week that they've had to deal with separately within their own political spheres. But um, I think the more discussions that they are having, the more likelihood they'll come to the table with proposals. But we really do have to see them because the whole thing is in jeopardy otherwise. The curious things about what we know of the proposals they are discussing in their in our Brexit cabinet today is they've kind of already been rejected by the European Union side. You know, one is this customs partnership where the UK would have collect tariffs on the EU's behalf. The other is this thing called MaxFac, where mm. it's basically a rehash, as far as I know, of the paper they produced last August, uh, yeah. talking about trusted trader schemes and cross-border initiatives that was rejected out of hand by both the Irish government and the EU government. So it's going to be a huge test in the coming weeks that even if Theresa May is successful in bringing her cabinet around to her position of a customs partnership, is that a satisfactory position for the Irish government? And as you say, we're only a couple of weeks from June. If it's not, what do we do then in June? Like, well, if a customs partnership, which is seen by hard Brexiteers in the United Kingdom as actually being a thin end of mm. the wedge, which might lead to effectively the United Kingdom remaining within the customs union, would, um, and this is why I suppose I'm wondering about Michel Barnier's wording, would the, would the European Union not be, uh, would it not be in its interest to encourage that as a road worth going down at least for a while as part of a process? Yeah, someone was just chatting to somebody yesterday who said that they had a, they had a great fr- phrase uh, that they thought when this would come to a halt. So they say well, October will be when the fudge hits the fan. That the fudge in December, yeah, the fudge in December hit the fan in March, and then there could be a fudge in June that will hit the fan in October. So it is. I don't know, could it be a possibility that the EU say, look, this is something that we can work off as a basis towards getting a tease out over October, over the summer, and then getting it nailed down in uh, October. But is it good enough, given the political temperature has changed domestically for the government in terms of Brexit? We've had a more strident opposition that both Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil are awaiting to see the outcome of the June Council meeting, and they've both raised a very high bar for the Taoiseach and Simon Coveney to get over. So I don't think a fudge of that nature would suffice domestically now. Well, I mean, for us to just merely have a kind of a proposal of something that may or may not possibly work and may be tied down in October is not good enough because what we have in agreement is the protocol and we have uh, an agreement to translate that protocol um, talking about what a possible future relationship might look like and how that might solve the Irish issue is completely separate to Mm. the actual protocol. So we need to see actual translations and and I suppose what we could remind and and should remind the UK is that this isn't the first option. We're not saying this is going to be the outcome, but this is what you have agreed uh, if and until the outcome is created separately. So, you know, there are tough discussions, I think, that Theresa May has to have with her government. Um, I, you know, protocol essentially would involve, uh, you know, whether it's an act or not is another matter, but protocol essentially involves checks at uh, UK mainland ports on uh, material and people coming from, from Northern Ireland, doesn't it? And will therefore not be supported by the DUP or indeed the Jacob Rees-Mogg mm. win of the Tories? Well, not necessarily. I mean, you have two parts of the protocol um, and obviously the Section 50 was not translated by the EU because it doesn't directly it come under the power of the EU. It's an Sec- internal matter. It's an internal matter. So Section 49 talks about full alignment, areas linked to the single market, customs union, all-island economy, areas of cooperation. Section 50 then talks about the east-west relationship. So that's something mm. that would have to be and obviously that was included in the in the protocol because of the discussions between Theresa May and the DUP 
So how that is resolved is something that they need to resolve themselves. But what they have committed to in the Irish issue in the 49, section 49, um, is an agreement. Mm. It is there even as recently as March. Theresa May wrote to Donald Tusk, said, yes, we will fully translate it. She said after the council meeting, yes, we agreed to it in her most recent speech in London. She said we're fully committed to no borders. So everything that they're saying, everything that they're committing to yeah. would suggest that they want to translate us. Their actions, however, tell us differently. Mm. So now is, is it really is the crunch point and, and they need to be it's coming forward. There's an element of absurdity to this, I find, on, on, on both sides. It's like, you know, I mean, I might not tell you how you're going to get around the place, but if I insist that you chop off one of your legs, you're going to be hopping, mm. you know. Um, and the, the, We're not the, insisting anyone <laughs> chop off their legs, so they're, no, they're, no, they're yet, chopping off no, Maybe that's too violent a metaphor. That's certainly the last thing we want to get to. But the great hope is that... The great hope is that the UK will come to a position, you know, on the customs union. Senses, well, not come to a sense, but like, you know, that, that Theresa May will engineer a situation that is kind of, you know, everything. The, I can't believe it's not butter approach to customs union, but you call it something else. But whether she can get there, like, I know some people in the Irish government, maybe Helen, I'm, I'm not quite sure what you think, that are expecting a further development from her once the local elections in London are out of the way later this week, that between here and the June summit, we'll see further fleshing out of the issues. But I think it, it's all pointing towards a fudge and a fudge and a fudge and a fudge until it kind of just until peters, it blows up and, and, or does it blow up or does it peter until out? it blows up or peters out that like you just get to a certain situation where there's a kind of a staging post and another staging post and another staging post it's like if June is to blow up it'll be probably Ireland who decides to blow it up because uh-huh. we will have to say you know we don't we are not satisfied with this we are not satisfied with the progress and it's a big call for us to make to do that I mean there there isn't any more opportunities for, for things to be moved on. Mm. October is the fine line um, in order for the UK to pass through what they need to pass through in, the, in, their, um, in their government for the EU then to ratify it. We have to have this finished mm. by October and I mean if you don't have that progress by June, irrespective and, and you know the negotiations need to continue, we're not going to see that progress and I suppose the backstop and I think Michelle Barney put it rightly, it's not uh, there to create red lines, it's there because of mm. the UK's red lines. So, in order for them to be able to fulfil the agreements that they've reached, we possibly need to see movement in some of these red lines. But again, that's mm. for them to decide. They have to propose, isn't they? Have to be happy with what they're but proposing. The teach themselves a lot today. You know, that the UK discourse is all about our red lines, our red lines, our red lines. You know, well, there are other. Not to call them red lines, but there are other principles that the Irish government stick to. So, it's essentially, the Irish government's position is that the UK red line and the Customs Union has to change. Is yeah, it? Is it? Yeah. Well, again, to reiterate that the backstop is there because of their red lines. Mm. So, I mean, they have made certain commitments and certain agreements and how they circle that square is up to them. Mm. We can't tell them how to do it. We've put forward our own views as to how that could happen. Um, but obviously they have to be the ones to put forward Which that proposal. in a Customs Union of sorts. And and that would go part of the way because obviously you still have issues in terms of alignment, in terms of regulation. Mm. If that diverges and changes over time, then suddenly that brings in other types of barriers that will cause difficulties mm. on the island of Ireland. So there are lots of com- there are ho- lots of complexities. We're not still holding some sort of hope that the single market will come back, come back on the table as well. We live in hope in anything, so we don't <laughs> know what might happen. Well, I think that's the hope of the kind of the Ken Clark wing of the Tory Party, isn't there? That the May government implodes because it can't get this through Parliament and there may well be a general election or certainly some form of change of government. But even, even that wouldn't change the position of the single market. It might Indeed. change the, the position on the customs union but the single market that that ship seems to have sailed I, I would think, you know, but is I just curious that if, is there an Irish government hope that that may come back on the table in some sort of way? No, for no, I mean, we're, we're taking the UK at their face value. They're saying that they're leaving both um, but again, 
they have to now figure out how they're going to square the circle that the commitments they've given, mm. if they're going to keep both of those red lines, how is it possible? How do, do you feel in terms of, you know, progress was made in December and then it was somewhat kind of welched on between then and now? If progress is made till June, would you have full faith that the UK will stick to their their position until October or could you would you be afraid there'd be further slippage? Well, I think every different stir, every every I suppose we've had a number of different turning points. We've had December, we've had March, um, and in all of those we've managed to progress certain elements. So I mean the transition period which was agreed um provisionally for agreed. Um this is something that we wanted, this is something that we push for, that we mm. need uh, as a country, that our business needs, that we need to be able to so I mean there are a number of areas that we have seen significant progress, particularly around the common travel area. So there's lots of Irish issues that we have actually seen progress. This is just mm. the final one that we need to see um that last progress and translating it actually into the legal text. So mm. you know along the way we have seen movement in a lot of different areas, but obviously we're coming now towards the end and, and this is the crucial point to try and get the last piece over the line. We'll move on. We've just over three weeks to go to the referendum on repealing the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. Um, You were at canvassing today? I was out canvassing with some of my colleagues this morning um, at Pierce Street Station um, and then we had a I suppose a debunking the myth session afterwards um, just in Trinity College as well. So there's a lot of work going on. Yesterday I launched the Yes or Youth for Yes campaign uh, in the Sugar Club as well, which is a compilation of USI, uh, Belong to, Together for Yes and a number of organisations encouraging young people to get out and vote as well. So um as you've mentioned, this is we're, we're 23 days now, I think, from the actual referendum. And, and for me, I see my role and I think my colleagues politically see our role as making sure that the correct information is out there. Uh, obviously, the commission has a job to do in that, but we also have um, our own leaflets, our own flyers, our own posters and information to make sure that people get the correct information. It's to give a platform to the experts, uh, whether it's legal or medical, that we feel have concerns on this issue and to give them that platform to actually speak and to, to have their concerns heard. Um, it's to encourage people, to empower people, to have conversations, whether it's at home with your parents or grandparents, in work, within your communities, your wider communities. Um, but then also, I, I see our role as debunking the myths, um, calling out people who are putting out mistruths or misinformation. And personally, I think there is quite a lot of that at the moment, so it's, it's important to be clear and, and in what's happening. What sort of reaction get? I, I don't want to stereotype anybody, but I would have thought Pier Street Station, Trinity College and the Sugar Club are three of the yesiest places in the country. Um, maybe in your own constituency, which is an interesting mix of, of, of rural, um, large towns and commuter belts. What, what sort of, what's your sense of the feeling on the ground? Well, I suppose the, sh- the Sugar Club was a venue and the people invited were young people, so so that's generally who came. Um, and Pier Street, you had a good mixture of people from all wakes of life, ages, genders, heading to wherever they were going today. So, but is there an urban-rural divide at all? Do you know, I don't think so. And I think I've been having conversations with people for a long time. Um, and I can see, even from conversations I had with people last year, uh, the changes in their viewpoints, the changes having had, I suppose, uh, access to information over that time. Uh, we did a big canvas on my own village uh, where I live over the weekend for the most part it was a very positive campaign, uh, a lot of people undecided but perhaps maybe veering towards yes um, and obviously Can you distinguish between, I, always, I wonder about this because I'm hearing back from canvases, between people who are actually undecided and people who just don't really want to engage in a conversation about it they may or may not have made their mind up either way, it's not a subject that they, they particularly want to engage on verbally 
So I think a lot of the people I've spoken to when they say I'm undecided and when you start having a conversation with them, you actually realise they're undecided, but they're veering in a certain direction. And mm. that's the sense that I'm getting from a lot of people. For people who are who are really undecided and maybe don't want to get into that conversation, um, I've never had anybody uh, be aggressive, be angry. Um, you know, I'm certainly, in, and the people I'm canvassing with or, or that we're uh, engaging with are polite. It's about information. It's not about trying to force your views on anybody. This is a very difficult and divisive issue uh, and has been for a long time. So it's about getting the facts out there. It's about saying what's currently in place, the status quo, what will happen if we repeal, what won't happen uh, if we don't repeal. Um, and it's about trying to encourage people also to get out and vote. One of the things that really surprised me yesterday is um, at the, the Youth for Yes launches that we have 150,000 young people who aren't registered to vote. So I would strongly encourage anybody who isn't to have until the 8th of May, take into account the fact if you're posting letters or anything, that takes time. But check the register, get the forms you need, depending on where you are, what your situation is, and make sure you're on the register to vote. Just, something I found curious talking to politicians like yourself in recent weeks who've been out canvassing, you know, testing opinion. Something a number of them came across was older voters who... Um, maybe kind of inclined to vote no, but didn't want to vote against the proposition, so felt they might stay at home. Have you come across that at all? A number of people have said it to me that they were out canvassing, they'd call on the door, people they would know or identify with and would be, you know, a older uh, age profile, but they just felt they would stay away because it wasn't for them as an issue. They couldn't vote for it, but they didn't want to block it either. So I haven't got that sense. In fact, actually, and I think we're all guilty of doing it, sometimes we have a perception of a person mm because of their age, because of their mm. gender, because of maybe their background, that they're going to vote a particular mm. way. And I've been surprised more times than not by somebody who has said, oh, no, absolutely, I'm voting for it. And equally the other way, no, I'm voting against it. I don't believe in it. Um, so I've, I've, I've learned not to judge. And certainly when I knock on a door and someone answers, um, I don't talk to anybody in any way differently because I think uh, we have to I suppose take it at face value that you just don't know what people, what way people are going to vote and in particular older people, a lot of older people that I've spoken mm. to have said yes I think mm. we need to change this, I think mm. uh, this has gone on for long enough in our country we need to support women, we need to provide health care in our country and in fact uh, the the um, the briefing that I've just come from this morning, one of the legal speakers, I think what she said was really really important um, because this is often there's often this um, link to the UK and the system that's there at the moment and that we're going to introduce a system that is, um, I suppose, unregulated and, and that is quite extreme. Um, we're actually introducing or proposing to introduce a system that would be very much regulated and um, that would be much uh, more restricted than the UK. And if people don't approve of the UK then the only way that you can actually address that is by repealing the eighth and making sure that we have a system and in place one of here. The key that is of the, of the debate has been has been around that about what, what the post the post twelve week le mm. legislation is. Can I just ask you for analysing it? I mean, there was a lot of talk a couple of weeks ago about how well each campaign was set up and mm. how quickly it had you know effectively mobilised and you know got out pounding the pavements and that. What's your perception of where the campaign's at now? Now we're right in the middle of it. How the two sides are doing? I would think that. You know, the, the no side had a good few weeks before the official start of the referendum campaign, if you like, by, you know, making the 12 weeks issue uh, front of the debate, the argument of trusting politicians, that attraction too. But I think since then we have seen 
DS side put the experts to the fore. As Helen said, she just covered people, legal people, medical professionals. I thought the late late show debate on Friday night probably will mark the official start of the campaign. And if that's the template by which the campaign will be fought, DS side did very well out of it. You know, you had. Peter Boylan leading the debate for the yes side against Caroline Simons and a journalist uh, who was giving her point of view as well. But I think the 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 the, the strategy of put, putting medical professionals front and centre is working at the moment. It's working very, very well. And you can see that the no campaign just wanted to drag it back to the 12 weeks and trust the politicians' argument. I think that may wear somewhat thin as an argument as we go on for the full three weeks weeks, when you're hearing personal experience personal testimony that is going to be the more affecting uh, determinant I would think of the campaign and it was like again going back to that debate like it was the biggest debate we've had so far in the campaign the personal testimony from the two women in the audience was hugely significant I think you know that would probably sway a lot more people than just saying 12 weeks politicians 12 weeks politicians Mm -hmm. no I am kind of struck in that it seems that the no campaign are holding off on a lot more aggressive campaigning to date. I thought we'd see a lot more use. I know the government have quite effectively boxed off the the idea of Down syndrome as an issue. The committee did it, the government did it. I did think we would see that dragged in more, as you remarked me in recent days. You. So I just wonder, are we going to see that towards the, the end of the campaign? But as of now, I think yes, has had a good run. Uh, and I think they would like to keep that going as the weeks on. I'm not quite sure if the campaign will catch fire as a campaign. It, it seems to me yeah, that the, the debate has been you know, fairly c- civil-minded you know, mm. and civil-spoken for, for, for the most part. But I do wonder what might be going on under the hood in social media and particularly as we get into the last two or three weeks. Is it not just crazy that we have regulations and legislation in place to dictate what can or cannot be done in, in the broadcast sphere and indeed what's acceptable and, and what has to be transparently visible even in print and other legacy media but any old organisation anywhere in the United States or indeed anywhere else can just buy Facebook ads and target people on them. Is that not a huge shortfall in our political system at the moment? Uh, well, this is, it's been raised many times and, and even just as recently as this morning, Josepha Madigan, who's, uh, I suppose, leading our own Fine Gael campaign on this for the yes, um, side has said that they have been asking questions and we have particularly of the referendum commission of um, how information is disseminated and I suppose factual information as opposed to inf- correct information and it's the same with some of the posters I myself would feel that some of the information is misleading uh, current state of play means that you can't uh, you can't force posters to be taken down but what you can is actually address what's on the posters, you can clarify what's on the posters and you can get the right information out there. So at that's least with posters, everybody what we can are see trying them, to do. You or I might not even see certain ads targeted digitally at, at certain people. No, and, and perhaps that's a shortfall that we have, that there is information out there that we're not sure of. But again, there is no law against putting out information on something, but um, where information is coming from a source that's mm. incorrect, where it's not, you know, where you have organisations that are not registered with SIPO that are actively campaigning, uh, that are spending money and not declaring it, then these issues need to be addressed. And that's, uh, I suppose, whether the powers are there to do that, um whether they're big enough powers to, to, to cover all areas, then that's something we need to try and address and all of those questions have been well, asked, is, have been looked at. It is a slightly ridiculous situation where we have the BAI setting rules for broadcasters, yet they can't even set rules for the broadcasters' online presence. Like, that's just the most ridiculous thing ever, that RT are subject to a moratorium, but RT.ie isn't, and its Facebook feed can do basically whatever it likes as well. It does seem bonkers to me, and it's a subject that, in fact, we, we, we might indeed return to in the future. But for the moment, thanks very much, Helen, Thank for you. coming in. Thanks, Vic. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and to our engineer, JJ Vernon. 
Ronan. Remember that you can always subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can drop me an email at hlinehan at irishtimes.com and I always welcome your views. You can mail me there or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.